But really, I'm not actually your friend, but I am. Blue canary in the outlet by the light switch. The watch is over you. Make a little birdhouse in your soul. Not to put too fine a point on it. Say I'm the only bee in your bonnet. Make a little birdhouse in your soul. And welcome back to J&K Presents. I'm the J in that duo, Jerome Cuson. And we are continuing our series, Cancelled Too Soon. This month, we are going to be discussing the 22-episode, two-season run of the ABC television series, Pushing Daisies. Uh, as always, please leave a four- or five-star review on The Real World to let people know what we are doing here at this website. Of course, you can also follow us on, on Twitter, me, at Jerome C1985 for now. Always got to put that caveat in there with Twitter these days. Uh, please support everything that we do here at The Real World. Uh, let's just get some plugs out of the way right now. Uh, so I am in the midst of Pantheon Plus with Brian DeBrain. Uh, Brian and I have spent the last couple months reviewing over some action movies from Michelle Yeoh in April and Donnie Yen in May, and I'm very excited to announce that uh, Kevin and or Brian and I, what am I saying, Kevin, uh, we are doing a Ford, Kevin, but it's not, it's Harrison Ford. Uh, we will be discussing Harrison Ford in the month of June uh, for Kevin Ford. Please follow him at his wrestling blog as he is continuing to review ROH for whatever reason. Uh, he is also uh, in the archives of the real world, uh, has discussed Lost and Adventure Time on from broadcast depth and flooping the pig respectively uh together kevin and i have done this cancel too soon series for over a year at this point we have also reviewed veronica mars through mars investigated uh breaking bad and better call saul uh with real bad and uh the first three seasons of barry and next month we will be discussing the final season of barry and we'll have a little bit more information about that a little bit later but kevin i want to start by asking you a question do you like pie? I, I'm i okay with pie. I, I don't dislike it, but it's not my favorite dessert. How badly did you want to eat pie as you were watching Pushing Daisies? I am the worst at the power of suggestion through shows and stuff like that, so very badly. So it's one of those things where you can watch an advertisement for, like, Taco Bell, and you're like, I don't want Taco Bell. But if somebody in the show or movie you're watching is eating Taco Bell, then you want Taco Bell. Is that... Is that kind of how it works? Maybe maybe Taco Bell's not the best example, but you know what I mean, right? Uh, that is extremely correct. Okay. So, of course, this show is all about pie, amongst other things. But uh, Pushing Daisies is the show that Kevin and I have been very excited to rewatch. This was this is a no-brainer. I think we've sort of been up and down with some series that we maybe haven't enjoyed so much. But this is one that I walked into knowing I really liked. And I have to say, Kevin, of all the shows that we have rewatched. This was the easiest rewatch that I've had. I could, I could literally have sat down and watched 10 episodes in a row. This was an utter joy an utter pleasure to rewatch. And I don't know if it's the best show, but just everything about this, like the 40 minutes of each episode would just fly by. And this, this was so easy. And uh, yeah, this is definitely going to be one of the easiest podcasts we've ever done. I think for that reason. Jerome, they say that April showers bring May flowers, and we're doing exactly that. We're bringing literal flowers with Pushing Daisies in the month of May. 
But it also brings to mind the sunny disposition of spring, the warmth, uh, the rain is gone, the cold, harsh winter is gone. And I think that really resonates with the tone of the show. And I do want to correct you, actually. I have not watched this show before. And I know we'll get into a relationship really? with the show. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. And I thought you had. I hadn't. And because you said this might be one of the, the best shows we've watched, I want to – something really clicked in my head when watching this show. It made total sense for me that you did not like Wonderfalls as much as I did because you had already seen Pushing Daisies. When we covered Terriers and I said I didn't think it was canceled too soon, I what I said was I feel like Terriers was like a show that they did, like Sean Ryan and Tim Minear, as like a trial show where they could get a sense of like what works, what didn't work. And I feel like with a fresh start in a different show, they would have done much better. And that's exactly what I feel like Wonderfalls is to Pushing Daisies. You know, Brian Fuller got to he got to have this show, figure out kind of what works, what didn't work, what he likes about the disposition of the show, the feeling of the show. You get some of the actors coming back in, in bit roles or one of them in a main role. And I feel like uh, he learned a lot of lessons doing Wonderfalls that he brought to Pushing Daisies and made a much better show. So to me, it's almost like Wonderfalls was – you know, as as people might say, Wonderfalls walk so Pushing Daisies can run. But it made complete sense to me if you watch Pushing Daisies first and Wonderfalls second, why you would say, eh, I don't know about this Wonderfalls show. But as for me, who had seen Wonderfalls and watched this, that clicked in my head instantly. And it made total sense why you felt the way you did about Wonderfalls. Well, I'm glad that you uh, you feel better about my opinion on, on Wonderfalls. But I certainly... I was able to, I think, to appreciate Wonderfalls a little bit more watching this show in making certain connections and realizing uh, how they were able to do so much better for this show. Uh, but I think we have to start um, with the fact By asking that a question. We already did that, Kevin. So we're <laughs> going to talk about a writer strike because one of the reasons that this show was in fact canceled too soon was because of a writer strike that started in November of 2007 ex- and extended throughout the winter well into 2008. Uh, this is a show that had received a full season order but was unable to fulfill that because of the writer strike. And when it came back, almost a third of its audience left with it. So unfortunately, uh, it has a nine-episode first season and a 13-episode second season. And unfortunately, I would classify that Uh, in the realm of being canceled too soon. But Kevin, I do want to mention the fact that as we are recording this, and I have to believe the writer's strike is still going to be going on, as many of you are listening to this, especially if it is at any time in the summer of 2023, I want to mention the writer's strike right at the top here, because not, and I think it's fitting that we're doing this now, because with, with the writers and what they are doing and the fact that they are picketing right now, It's so important to acknowledge just how important they are, because in terms of everything that we have ever discussed on this show, on this podcast, and the things that Brian and I do as well, the role of writers is so important. That is where it starts. And look, we praise all elements of the show, but I think it's really important, and especially I want to do this for this this show, fittingly, because it was affected by a writer's strike, to just mention the hard work that is done by all the writers and to say they deserve their money. I hope they get everything that they deserve 
in terms of uh, in terms of this strike. So I just wanted to say that. Um, anything to add, Kevin, before we move on? Uh, well, an amen to that. And it's really nice to see so many actors and others in Hollywood supporting the writers in the strike as well. Anytime I see somebody from a show or something that I enjoy who's out there on the picket lines or mentioning their support always makes me feel really good. Because I think a lot of those people know, like, you know, our our acting is nothing without the writers. You know, it's 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 the recipe that makes the chef successful in, in some ways. Uh, but I'll also take the time if you're maybe a younger listener and didn't live through it or you weren't as into television then. Uh, one of the episodes myself and Ben did of our Lost podcast, episode 42, discusses the 2007-2008 Writers Guild for America strike. So you can go and listen to that to kind of see about what brought it about, how it affected that show. Uh, a real cautionary tale, I think, for this and a lot of other shows that are affected by the strike and what could be the future of a lot of these shows. But yeah, like, t- it, there, it seems like consistency is so important for a show. So when you take a bunch of time off, that's not like a natural ser- the you know series ending in the summer or something. You change time slots, you change channels, you know something like that. That is a really bad sign, and a lot of shows their audience does not go and find them at those other times too. So uh, that is just another you know the strike, and I think all those changes are really led to an early death knell for for the show. Absolutely. And unlike at this time in 2007, 2008, there are not streaming options available. So if somebody wanted to hypothetically go ahead and rewatch it, it would have been very, very difficult to do so. I think even getting DVDs of the first season would have been difficult. So it's it's just an unfortunate circumstance all around if they had gotten that first full season. Who knows uh, how things would have turned out. I know that for me, I really, really like this show. And for it's it's one of those things where, funny enough, the re, one of the there are a couple of reasons that I really was into this show kind of from the start, and one of them was just the look and the feel of it. I think it's very Tim Burton esque, and I think Barry Levinson is able to kind of do a similar style. It's it's definitely not the same, but I think Barry Levinson has a lot to do um, as the as the as the executive producer and director of the pilot. And I think he does a great job just in establishing kind of the look and the feel of the show and the, the whimsical nature, the almost fairy tale like circumstances that are going on. And I just was very much into that aesthetic because it was just, it was also completely different from anything else that you see on TV. And even now I would say from a color palette standpoint, you are not going to see anything like this on broadcast television, especially I think you know, some of the like the almost musical nature of it, I think, has been done a little bit. And um, I think kind of the idea of bringing back the dead. I mean, there's there's shows like Ghosts and Not Dead Yet that have uh, that have kind of adapt- adapted it in some ways. But this show is just so unique and such a, again, a joy to watch. But the other reason and I, I was surprised to hear that Kevin also watched this show. Uh, but one of the main reasons I was so into this was uh, Shy McBride uh, is one of the stars of the show. And I was a huge fan of Boston Public. Kevin, one of the reasons that I was able to watch every episode of Boston Public, and it was always on my mind, it always aired before Raw. So I was always watching Boston Public before Raw. So that's, that is how I was uh, such a loyal viewer of that show. And I wasn't really a loyal viewer of many other shows at that point. 
That was, yeah, I would probably say it was the same for me. It was just also one of those shows that my whole family watched. Like, for some reason, my both my parents and my brother and I, we all liked it. So it was nice, like, appointment television for the four of us to get together. My my brother and I, like, didn't have TVs in our rooms growing up or anything like that. So, you know, we had a basement TV if we wanted to play video games or watch wrestling or whatever. But for the most part, like the main TV, it was whatever our parents wanted to watch or if they were upstairs watching in the bedroom, we could do whatever. So for the most part, it was like, you know, we could make appointment television about stuff we all liked, whether it was The Simpsons or I remember like watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire with them. And and Boston Public was one of those shows we all watched and really liked. Absolutely. Uh, So, yeah, this is uh, in terms of my relationship, I definitely uh, was was watching on a consistent basis uh, nearly every episode, and I believe there were a couple I missed, so I may have gotten the DVDs. I know that I've watched this at least a couple of times. Of course, it's been many years because there is, is so much TV. Kevin, what is your relationship with the show? So one of my good friends in college I befriended was through uh, this. The, it was called the the Cartoon Satire Club that I discovered, and it was basically a club that would watch episodes of shows like the Simpsons, South Park, Family Guy, Futurama, and some others that were based around a theme. Uh, so it'd be like, you know, gay marriage, the environment, things like that. You could watch some shows that all shared that similar theme to see kind of how these shows talked about and things like that. And one of my close friends through there was through him that I got into Futurama because I didn't really give it a chance until like people were like, actually, Futurama's good. And I watched it and they were correct. But he told me about Pushing Daisies and he's like, you should really watch this show. So at some point, I bought season one on DVD from Best Buy or Circuit City or something like that, and I just never watched it. And I ended up selling it at some point, and then I just kind of never thought about it again. Like, I didn't know how many seasons there were. That It was just something that I always had and just never bothered watching. It was just never something that was, like, a, a priority. And then you brought it up, and I was like, well, finally, I get my chance to watch this show you know, 15 or so years later after he recommended it to me, uh, I feel like a fool for not watching it because it's because it's wonderful. And yeah, like the the sensibilities about it, the humor it taking kind of place in this other, you know, just like kind of like a fake world that's all very colorful and bright and very, you know, just it just full of good vibes, especially in 2023 is very appealing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's more or less my relationship with the show is I had one friend recommended. I bought the DVD and never watched it. <laughs> and then all these years later, you recommend I'm like, yeah, I would like to watch that show. And I actually texted him after I finished the show and told him I watched it. And it had been a while since he had watched it, too. But he was very delighted to to hear that I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. And in some ways, it's funny. I, I hadn't thought about this going into it, but this is in many ways like a, a perfect pandemic show because of just some of the themes, the idea of, like, there's a lot of social isolation going on amongst many of the characters. Uh, They're afraid to touch each other at certain points, can't touch each other, uh, because in in the pie maker's case, like, you might kill them. So this is, in many ways, like, the perfect pandemic show, and a lot of the episodes take place in, like, apartments and uh, some tight squeezes. They're is very specifically an episode about smell. So it's it's funny that this show just feels so ahead of its time. And I wonder I, I, I it's it's a shame that it's been so long because it feels like in many ways this show could have been brought back by the pandemic and people rewatching it. 
Yes. And I think not even because of the very on the nose comparisons, but I think we've talked about how Ted Lasso got such traction in 2020 because of its very optimist uh, outlook and its positivity. And this show is relentlessly positive. Like when I was thinking about the differences in this and Wonderfalls, like I sensed really like the, the a lot of the humor from the protagonist in Wonderfalls is very like sarcastic, things like that. And there is like very little of that in this show. It is just like relentlessly positive and optimistic to the point where um, Bryce Remsburg uh, tweeted about, you know, hey, my wife and I are looking for a new show to watch. And he mentioned like, don't want, you know, too much to be, you know, don't really want anything heavy or sad or whatever, just so, you know, something you could put on the to, to end your day and kind of go to bed feeling good about. And I was in the midst of watching this show and I messaged him. I was like, dude, get Pushing Daisies on that list. You know, 22 episodes, whatever it is. Like it's, it is super positive, easy watch. I say, go for it. And I really feel like even if you took all of those elements out about it that are so on the nose with um, the pandemic itself, you just get like an overwhelmingly positive and upbeat and colorful, whatever it amounts to without commercials, 18, 20 hours, what have you to really pass the time and get your mind off of things. So and I think there's there is room for shows like that. Not everything has to be that way, but I do think that really speaks to the positive the the shows like Ted Lasso and stuff where yeah, we we have time for, you know, our dramas and maybe some some comedy that's uh, you know, a bit more sarcastic or a little bit more over the top, but when you get a show like this that is just so warm and, and wholesome and positive, there is room for that too. I would agree with you. So I I want to give a couple of notes before we get into uh, kind of running down the characters. We are not going to be doing an episode-by-episode episode rundown because there's 22 of them and that's too many, but we will definitely highlight uh, some of our favorites. So, as can, I, can I pause for a second? Go ahead. Uh, I do want to mention, I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I read with the, the writer's strike, you said 22 episodes. I believe season one was supposed to be 22 episodes and only nine ended up coming out because of the pandemic. Is that correct? Because that's yeah, a so lot of episodes to lose. Yeah, that's I was that was literally the note that I was about to read. In fact, was the fact that this was supposed to be 22 episodes. It ended up being nine. Brian Fuller turned the ninth episode into a cliffhanger. And it's just it's really unfortunate that we did not get uh, that full first season again. Also, because of the writer's strike, uh, the ratings declined and the show was canceled again. The first season did an average of nine point four million viewers. The second season did around six and uh, it's I, it might be hard for some people to understand, but back in the day, people used to watch broadcast network TV and uh, a show that draws six million people would probably be one of the top shows on broadcast TV now. But back in 2007, 2008, uh, people were still heavily reliant on the old broadcast TV. Uh, so there was a there was a lot of shenanigans in terms of airing the remaining episodes to the point where the last couple of episodes aired on Saturday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern time, uh, which is not not great. That is a definitely a sign that it shows just trying to burn things off. Uh, the original concept of pushing daisies was rooted from the show Dead Like Me. Uh, the show's creator, of course, also Brian Fuller. Uh, he intended for Pushing Daisies to be a spinoff of Dead Like Me. Of course, with Brian Fuller and thinking about who he is, we have discussed a number of his shows. And I mean, we could almost do like an entire episode dedicated to Brian Fuller because he has canceled. He has had so many shows 
canceled too soon. And it just kind of sucks, man. And uh, another one of his shows that he was also uh, a part of, Heroes, was also dramatically affected by the strike and also ended up being canceled uh, after a couple seasons. It's, uh, it's oh, pretty no. wild. I did not realize he was part of Heroes because that's like one of like the key cautionary tales of the writer's strike. Yeah, and it's it's such a weird... Like, Brian Fuller has had a profoundly bizarre career because you just look at his TV credits and he's done like some unbelievable work in his time, but all of his shows, like none of them are longer. Like the longest show that he is credited at this point is Star Trek discovery. And he was like fired off of that show after the first season, but like that's his longest running show that he is credit to it's it's wild man and some of those star trek paramount plus shows are so weird in terms of like quality ebbs and flows and stuff but that's a whole different episode but yeah that is uh some people just if, if they didn't have bad luck they'd have no luck at all yeah and uh kevin will never watch hannibal so we will not we will never discuss hannibal unfortunately but <laughs> is that unfortunate i mean here's the thing if you watch that show you will be stunned to know it was on broadcast TV with what's with some of the things they do in it. I do like Mads Mickelson. But the problem is it's it's real gnarly. It's real gnarly and real dark. So yeah, that's, it would be, that's it would be a very scene. tough watch. Yeah, it would be a very tough watch. What but, did you think? Did you watch American Gods? Uh, the first season was not great, so I kind of tapped out after the first season. Stars loses again. <laughs> oh, poor stars. Anyway... Uh, there was rumors and discussions of a comic book, uh, a possible film proposed around the time of the Veronica Mars Kickstarter, even a Broadway musical. Sadly, nothing has ever materialized uh, with follow-up to this Pushing Daisies IP. And uh, it's really unfortunate that that this never got any sort of follow-up because I feel like of, of all the canceled Too Soon projects, I feel like this is one that I would love to have seen more from this universe so we just haven't gotten it me too and i think for context in the late 2000s uh buffy came back in comic form like they did a season eight and maybe season nine and joss was on some of those books so it was like a legit continuation of the series and it continued on too long with people who weren't writers on the show and i was like meh but some of those comics are really good and then it was the Veronica Mars Kickstarter, which you and I talked about, that I think really got Brian Fuller thinking, like, say. And I think I even read, like, he asked Rob Thomas, like, so how does this work? What are you doing? And I think I think it's just like with Rob Thomas and Veronica Mars, you have those projects that you kind of linger in your head about. If only things had ended differently or if I had the chance to do this or that, I'd do it like this. And I think those two avenues had been proven to be successful in terms of continuing a show. And so I could see why he was thinking like maybe this or maybe that. And then, yeah, it's, it's a shame nothing happened. And I hate to say it, but I do feel like it's time has passed. It's just the show's too old Agreed. at this point. And yeah. I just don't think it would work now. If they wanted to do a comic, fine. I think that could still work. Or if even if they wanted to do like an animated series, that might still work. But yeah. in terms of live action, I don't. Animated yeah. would be amazing. There's so many things they can explore in that universe through animation. That was like the fun thing with the Buffy comic is there's just things they couldn't do. Like Dawn becomes a giant by accident in that series, which like you really couldn't do that. You'd have to do some really bad CGI or something. But a comic gives you so many more options and it's a lot of fun. Uh, and plus with voice acting, you know, you don't have to deal with how the characters have aged in real life and things of that nature. That also, man, like I think about like 
all these different sitcoms that did like pandemic specials, a one-time pandemic special of this would have been so good and so fun. And so, and, and maybe could have gotten some people to see that and be like, Oh, what was this show? I know Lee Pace, da, 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 and then go back and watch the series on, on HBO or whatever. And it would have been, uh, what could have been, what could have been, but I, I, I feel like if, if there was ever a chance where that could have been something possible, a pandemic special would have been fun. But now you got me thinking animated series would be uh, would be a real treat. Yeah. Speaking of Lee Pace, I think we have uh, we have covered so much Lee Pace across this website at this point. I think the only thing of his we haven't discussed that he's been a part of is his Apple TV show Foundation. But otherwise, the Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, Ms. Marvel. Uh, what else? Uh, uh, Wonderfalls. Halt and Catch Fire. We've, uh, yeah. we've definitely we've definitely covered his oeuvre, so to speak. We're gonna. I mean, it's meant to be enter Lee Pace's world. It should maybe be the name of the website going forward. <laughs> and you know what? It should worse. be his world. He's wonderful. Uh, yeah. It's, Is Foundation any good? It's 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 a very very it's a hard sci-fi, hard with a capital H, underlined, bolded, italicized. Well, you know what? Uh, Roman maybe would have written that. Could have been the show that he written on, and being put on Apple. Apple TV Plus is probably better than whatever Quibi equivalent he ended up on. Oh, God. The Quibi. Anyway, so originally the show was written. It was written for Lee Pace. His agents declined it. Fuller offered it to Adam Brody, who turned it down because he did not want to do another TV show after the OC. And I have to say, if Adam Brody is on this show, it is both very different and I don't think it works. I think Adam Brody's... Adam Brody's humor is so much more sarcastic and non-sincere. I don't think I don't think this show works with him in, in the lead. I almost think it's almost like a situation of of The Office where when the show started, they're like, we want nobodies in these roles. You know, Steve Carell basically only had The Daily Show under his belt. And it was just so happened to be The 40-Year-Old Virgin came out that first summer the show aired. But But everyone else in that cast, like, you would know them from nothing. And I feel like, yes, Lee Pace was on Wonderfalls, but nobody watched that, as we discussed. A lot of people watched the OC. And I feel like if you're looking for that OC audience, they would have watched a show and hated it, and they wouldn't have come back. So I am in complete agreement with you. And I have nothing against Adam Brody. Um, I've seen him in a lot of stuff I do like. But I do think like it needed to be an, a relative unknown like Lee Pace was in 2008 for this to work. Yeah, it is unfortunate. Uh, Brian Fuller stated one of the things he wanted to do was to have narrator Jim Dale appear on screen and reveal who was telling the story. I have to say, there are a lot of things with narrators that can come off very goofy, very stupid. I think Jim Dale is a very important cog in this machine, and I, I, I genuinely think this show doesn't work without having a narrator. Again, coming back to this idea of it being a fairy tale, I think Jim Dale is necessary, and he just justifies his existence. He is he is absolutely a tremendous part of the show. Yeah, and like I'll read phrases like the pie maker in this, or think about phrases like the facts were these in his voice forever. And his voice has that same like that that same sound and timbre that you would hear of like a, a a children's fairy tale on television or something along those lines. So it really gives you it it really adds to the vibe that the show is trying to pull off. He's great. I'm actually really glad they never showed him. Fair enough. I mean, I, again, I think if you do it like a season six or seven, uh, when you're like coming to the end, maybe I could see it, but I, I would agree with you. Like just blowing it off in the first two seasons would not have been a good thing. Anna Friel, who plays Chuck, 
uh, used her American accent. Did you ever find videos of her using her British accent? Because after watching all of this, boy, does it sound weird. Yes, I did. Because when we had talked about this a while ago, I actually picked up the season two Blu-ray from my used bookstore uh, for pretty cheap. I don't remember what I paid for it, but they didn't have season one. And when we when I finished watch and I ended up just watching the show on HBO Max out of ease. But it was over. I said, let me see if there's any worthwhile, you know, extras on the Blu-ray. And, you know, there's a couple like vignettes of like the music and stuff like that, but nothing, nothing too meaty. But they do have Lee Pace and Anna Friel talking a little bit about Brian Fuller and yeah, hearing her English accent. Also, seeing hearing her English accent and seeing the two of them close together was very jarring after watching this show. But yes. There's somebody I feel like we we covered another show where it's the same thing. Like there was an actor, actor, actress who used an a, an American accent. And I found that they were like from New Zealand or something. And then I saw actual footage of them and I was like, my world is a lie. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember offhand. I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember who it was. But yeah, it's 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 a very strange thing to have these these. British performers get so good at these American accents and hers is very good. Honestly, there were a couple of episodes where I could kind of like hear it, but for the most part, like it is, it is stellar. Like you would never know. Yes, you would never know. And I, and I have to say like, I had never seen her before, but just like with her big eyes and her disposition, it was like so easy to fall in love with her throughout this show. Uh, which is also, I think, important as you're somebody watching it from a perspective of of Ned from a lot of the show, too. She's just uh, like, it, like, again, just such a, a character that was hard. You, you couldn't possibly dislike her, I feel. Absolutely not. I want to mention Kristen Chenoweth uh, was fresh off her historic Broadway way run in Wicked. I, I don't think I can plant in anyone's head just how important this Broadway show was. Like, I remember seeing this when it came to Chicago. Wicked was a huge deal. It is finally getting a theatrical movie. I believe it's coming out either this year or next, but this is the, this is the equivalent. And I actually think this is a good comparison. Better Call Saul is to Breaking Bad as Wicked is to the Wizard of Oz. That is, that is how high I hold Wicked uh, in, in terms of being a prequel. So it, this is a big deal, and getting Kristen Chenoweth to do a TV show at this point uh, was a big deal. And uh, I think she's very good. Uh, Thanksgiving 2024 is when Wicked Part 1 is coming out uh, in theaters. Um, I've not seen it, but I have strong memories of my senior year of high school being driven around through my friend when him and his girlfriend basically just had the soundtrack on in their car the whole time. So I know a lot of the music. And Kristen Chenoweth is also a big ball of sunlight and positive energy in this show. The songs she gets to sing are such good choices for the adaptations in the scenes. Um, like They Might Be Giants is my favorite band. And you'll hear somewhere in the show the cover that her and one of the ants do of Birdhouse in Your Soul. But also her getting to do uh, Eternal Flame by the Bangles in, the, in one of the episodes. So I'm glad that they utilized her singing skills and they and I don't think they overdid it. Um, and I think her they they used her so well in this show. Uh, and again, just another character that's impossible to hate. The, the only thing that I almost criticize it for is at times I'm wondering, do I root for her and Ned to get together or do I or do I root for her for Ned and Anna Friel to get together? It's sometimes you lo- you love them all so much. You want everyone to be happy. 
it's funny you mentioned that you had not watched the show because you started watching this before I did. And I watched the first scene and a dog gets hit by a truck. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I should have warned Kevin about this. What what was I thinking, Kevin? What was your reaction in that moment? Because yeah, Kevin is very sensitive to violence against dogs, which is why he has not watched leftovers or things of that nature. If you have a, a child in the car, maybe skip ahead. But I, my thought was this motherfucker gave me a show where in the first minutes a fucking dog gets hit by a car. What is this motherfucker thinking? And then the dog gets brought back to life. And I'm like, OK, maybe that's why Jerome didn't give me the warning. I I, I will be honest. I forgot that this is the opening scene. <laughs> if it had been, I would I would have warned you. I 100 percent would have warned you and i would have straight up just spoiled what happened because you were gonna be so mad <laughs> and the anxiety i felt the whole show like fucking digby's gonna run into him and he's gonna die and i'm gonna be mad all over again i i just expected it at some point to happen and thank goodness it didn't no i mean they they do such a good job of handling that and once you get over the initial trauma of the dog being hit uh, it's it's really, really good stuff, I would say. And uh, I think this the pilot is a miracle. Like, straight up, I, I cannot believe how good it is, how they are able to explain the premise in the first 10 minutes and just talk about who Lee Pace is as Ned or the pie maker. So his ability is, of course, bringing, being able to bring back the dead with a touch, a second touch, makes them compromised to a permanent end. And I know that, Kevin is thinking that's a John Cena joke, but I can't I can't say dead again. Like it just feels weird. So that is that is re dead maybe re dead also a possibility as well. Um, if the person who was brought back alive remains so for over a minute, another person dies, and Ned discovers his power. Of course, after his dog is run over, <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. Uh, tragically, he learns the other two rules the hard way. His mother has a surprise, I guess, aneurysm uh, that causes her to keel over and die. Ned touches her, but after a minute, Chuck's father across the street dies. And although Ned's mother is alive for about seven hours, uh, she goes to kiss him and also becomes re-dead. Uh, Ned is in love with, uh, with Chuck from across the street. Uh, they exchange their first kiss at the funerals of their respective dead parents. And Ned kind of goes on to school for people with no parents, lives his life in a pretty antisocial way. He has a couple friends at the school and whatnot, but for the most part, he keeps to himself. He owns a place called the Pie Hole, fittingly, makes pies from rotted fruit. And Kevin, all I can say is if he is getting rotted fruit, how much is he saving on the back end? Like, seriously, all the questions that I had, Kevin, and you might have had these same questions too. What are Ned's finances like? Because between the money that he gets from the PI business and buying rotted fruit, which I cannot imagine is very expensive, Ned must Ned must be a rich man. Why is he living in a one-bedroom apartment? Come on, man. I'd wonder that myself. Is it maybe – I don't – yeah, I don't really know. Maybe it's just like – he he doesn't seem like someone who needs a lot of space. I mean, it's him and his dog, right? How much how much space do you really need? And it's right above where you work. Can't beat that. Maybe prices in Kurtikur are really high. We don't know. But I'm sad we never got to see the scene of him like either digging up dead fruit or picking it or going to the grocery store and just getting all of like the 
weeks old berries for, you know, pennies on the dollar and just raking it in. I thought about that too, but then I never thought about it until later in the series when he starts doing fresh fruit and he's like, I never got to eat my pies because the berries die in his mouth if he eats them, which is a really smart way, like he says, to not get fat off of off of being a pie maker. How is everybody, because they're eating pie in every episode, how is everyone not like 700 pounds from all the pie? I that's that is a great question. Uh, maybe <laughs> maybe Especially th- Emerson. Emerson is eating like every single episode. He's eating a pie. Yes. Uh, well, you know, Emerson Cod is not the most fit person in the world. He's not gross, but he's also not, you know, he doesn't have a figure. I mean, maybe gravity just works different on Cortecar, you know, it's like, uh, you know, maybe in Star Wars, Anakin's a little bit more bloated on one planet than he is the other. Just, you know, gravity works different there. Eventually. Ned meets API named Emerson Cod. Emerson accidentally sees the pie maker use his gifts so they become partners and have a mutually beneficial relationship in that Ned brings back people from the dead for a minute to find out who committed a murder. There are a lot of murders, just like uh, Columbo, just like Murder, She Wrote. Wherever Ned goes, death seems to follow him in so many ways. And again, the pilot explains all of this quite efficiently in the first 10 minutes in a lot of cases, and this is the ratio, again, that I think benefits from having a narrator because the rules really are quite simple, not like King of the Mountain, but they are quite simple. They do need some explanation, but I feel like once you get past that pilot, it just, I think it all really clicks in very fast. It does click together very fast. And something that I really liked, and I don't know if they did this on TV or just HBO, but like the top of every episode was a solid recap about the premise and stuff you needed to know going into the episode. Which is also, which, you know, they do that in Breaking Bad too, which is helpful, especially because they know, like, hey, if they mention this thing, even if it's X amount of episodes old, you know it's going to be important for this episode itself. So, yeah, I, it does feel like I'm like, all right, this could, this is a lot to to swallow in terms of a premise and getting the rules of the universe down and things like that. But kind of, you know, once you kind of understand it or get it or you at least buy into the premise, it's a pretty smooth ride from there. Uh, so we have Ned and Cod uh, eventually happening upon the murder of Chuck in the first episode. Uh, Ned's lost love. Ned brings her back, but cannot bring himself to make her re-dead this time. So uh, they become a trio instead of a duo. The only thing is Ned and Chuck, who very much are still in love with each other, they cannot touch, clearly quite horny for each other uh, throughout all 22 of the episodes. And with the exception of a couple hiccups, I think it's really interesting to note that they really never break up, which is which is kind of fascinating because I feel like maybe it's because of the fact that because of the nature of the episodes or maybe because of just the circumstances, I feel like they would have broken up at some point. But I thought it was refreshing that they did not actually break up at any point. I agree. And it but it also makes you realize there is this weird like tethering of them together because I mean, obviously, and it is almost interesting. They don't explore it so much. And I wonder if that's something they maybe could have gotten into with more time, even if I don't know that I would have wanted them to, but you almost wonder like, is it's glad it, I never feel like their love isn't genuine, but I, you, it almost makes you wonder if there's some time where Chuck ever thinks like, you know, maybe she has feelings with somebody else and all this, but she's like, well, I'm I'm only alive and having these feelings because of Ned, but Ned can't give me certain things. And how long 
are you supposed to harbor this, you know, this feeling for the person who brought you back to life? You know what I mean? Um, so that could have been something that was explored and it, and it like, it wasn't ever really explored, but it was, I think sort of discussed in passing. I'm with you that I'm glad they didn't do it, but I do wonder if with more time, if that's something that would have been touched upon. So we'll, I guess now's a good time to get into this, but I feel like in season two, they were headed in the direction of teasing the Oliver Ned stuff a lot, but either because they knew they were canceled and they just needed to hurry up and put together some sort of ending. They kind of pivoted away, but I feel like they were going in that direction a little bit with Olive and Ned. Yeah. And I have mixed feelings on that. Like, especially, you know, cause Ned kind of confesses he may have had feelings for once upon a time, but it's also like, they both think they're going to die. So there's no harm in his mind of, of revealing that. And I think they do a really good job of Olive both accepting Ned's moved on and also not accepting it. I think they play those those very well because I also think the best part about Olive is her unwavering support of her friend Ned is just that. Like she never is, you know, she might be jealous or sad about the way Ned feels about Chuck instead of her, but that doesn't cause her to treat him any worse or or betray him. And I really like that they did steer in that direction you think it was going to be happening in season two in the Norwegians episode, but that even I kind of quickly realized what was going on there. So I appreciate that it, her, her support for Ned isn't conditional. And I think that's what made it work. But I also think you're right in that they had to, maybe they were going to go and and teeter back and forth between the two of them a bit more. And I'm glad they just said like, no, we're going to end the season with the definitive like Ned has a partner. I agree. I think given the circumstances of only being 22 episodes, I think it worked out for the best, but yeah, they, they, they were clearly going in some sort of direction with Olive. And I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to see why just because I, I think Anna Friel and Lee Pace have really good chemistry, but I also think Kristen Chenoweth and Lee Pace had really good chemistry too. So uh, I absolutely think that could have worked. And uh, let's talk about uh, Ned uh, so what happens to Ned eventually has to tell Chuck about him being the reason that her father is dead, uh, even though at the time he did not know the full extent of his power. So it's not like he masochistically wanted him dead or knew somebody was going to die. He just didn't know the circumstances of his powers. And because of that, yes, he is mad for a little while, but I think he's more mad that he didn't tell her than what he actually did. Uh, I appreciate the show how it handled this in a very mature and interesting way. Again, not going in the kind of cliched direction. And then eventually a situation arises where Ned has to consider bringing back the father for a minute and he hesitates before doing so. This is an important part of the early part of season two. Uh, and the whole situation does throw things into chaos. We'll talk more about that uh, when we talk about Chuck's character. Uh, but I also want to talk about the living situation. Uh, Ned and Chuck live together in the first season, which... Boy, does that seem like a really terrible idea. And they do, try, they do try to justify it, and they do try to do things to ensure that it's it's clear why they're staying together and, like, the bells and things. But by season two, uh, clearly it's insane, and two people who should not be touching should not be living in the same small living space. So they, uh, they separate, and uh, Chuck gets her own apartment. Uh, she takes over Olive's apartment, and uh, 
starts to become more independent. That's one of the themes of season two. So, uh, so any thoughts on their living situation before we, uh, before we talk about uh, the olive thing a little bit more? You're right. Like it, it was a fun opening scene of season two to see them like walking through the house, not trying to bump into each other. It would have also been funny to see like, once they realized they could touch through like gloves or other things, just seeing like the both of them wearing hoodies and gloves and stuff like that the entire time they're together. I'm just sad we never got to see the freakiness of them like, you know, getting getting after it like in two sleeping bags or something. Uh, have you ever seen the naked gun? Man, I if I have, it's been like long enough that I basically haven't. Uh, so there's a point when Leslie Nielsen and Priscilla Presley wear like body sized condoms. And that's what I was thinking that Ned and Chuck needed to do invest in. <laughs> Maybe it is. I mean, I guess it's just the show is is so pure and it's like G-Ray. They like never even like broach the subject of that. It's all about like physical contact and like, you know, the most they ever do is like smooch and hug. <laughs> I like your use of the word smooch. We don't have enough of that. In, uh, they do smooch. In they do. Yes. And it's adorable. And again, I think you need these kind of shows. Not every show should be super dark or super sarcastic. I think there was a Darth of these kinds of shows on TV and it sucks. Yeah, for sure. We, you could use something like this, but it also, I don't know that there's many writers, directors, what have you that could get the theme, right. Where sometimes it feels like it's overly, I would agree to like where you roll your eyes and you're just like, Ugh. but I feel like this nails it. Absolutely. Uh, so what if I were to tell you, Kevin, that there is a show where two women are in love with Lee Pace? Is that not the most believable premise of all time? Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, Olive, of course, is also in love. He isn't reciprocating. They kiss in the first season, but it's more of a friendly kiss. We get more tension in the second season. Um, but again, like because of the cancellation, it very much feels like they had to pivot away from that. But... Yeah, uh, the the Ned and Olive relationship, I think, is is really interesting um, because there is that tension, but there's also uh, they become friends. I really like the fact that Olive was kind of an antagonist at the beginning, but they're like, I don't know if they were like, this isn't working or like, this is not what we want the show to be. And they very quickly almost make her part of the gang. And I think that works out so much better because I think her just antagonizing for all 22 episodes would have gotten old real fast, especially if she was doing it in every episode. Me too. And again, I think it comes to the point where you almost feel bad for her. Like there's the one episode where like he and Olive, like like Ned quickly pretends like they're dating. And it's like, he's almost like playing with her emotions, even if he doesn't intend to. And it's like, how do you not feel bad for Olive in that situation? So if she was the antagonist for the whole show. Stuff like that wouldn't have worked either. All right, let's talk about Anna Friel as Chuck. And do you want to talk now about why we haven't seen Anna Friel since? Is that because I know this is bothering you? Yeah, I would love to know. So in terms of who Anna Friel is, I mean, I think that there's a couple things like being on a show that gets canceled like this doesn't help. I think her being in Land of the Lost, a movie that bombed really badly. And again, she's an actress. She's not going to get as many opportunities to fail. And it's just it's really unfortunate because you watch this show. And she is so good. And it just, it's, and she has had a career. It's not like she hasn't been doing things. She's done a lot of British TV, which is great. And I'm sure it, it certainly pays the bills. But it just feels like, it feels like she is the type of person that should have been doing more in certain genre elements. And obviously, we don't have as many romantic comedies anymore. So she can't really explore that. But 
it's uh, it's just really unfortunate that her career has kind of been restricted to smaller British projects, and she really has not been in a lot of major American projects since Pushing Daisies. It's almost exactly like what we talked about with Caroline Davernas in Wonderfalls, where she was she excelled in her role here in Wonderfalls, but you kind of get that black mark of you were the lead of a show that failed. Yeah, she got a second run in Hannibal, and she got to be, but otherwise, it's like everything else is like, you know, an episode of Law and Order here, two episodes of this show there, maybe a couple, you know, roles on a Canadian TV show versus a British TV show in the case of Anna Friel. But it just, and, and then we talk about like, well, there's an, this is just how Hollywood thinks, but there's plenty of other brunette actresses that look kind of sort of like you. So sorry. And that's bullshit. And it sucks. But that is unfortunately how it goes. Yeah, it sucks so much because she's so good. I mean, she's just so good on this show. And where we start with Chuck is that she moves in with her aunts. We'll talk more about them shortly. One of her aunts actually turns out to be her long lost mother. Uh, but Chuck does a lot of the, the caretaking. And uh, at one point, she wins an award to, to finally leave her cocoon. And fittingly, she gets murdered when she is made alive again. She wants to live life to the fullest by honoring victims' last wishes, but really can't move freely about the world since everybody thinks she's dead. She moves in with the Pie Maker, becomes kind of the third member of this PI agency. Uh, eventually, Chuck moves on her own in the second season. And at times, Kevin, it really feels like the writers can't seem to figure out how independent they want her to be. And I think they struggle with certain aspects, specifically when Ned brings her father back to life. Um, Chuck decided to fake his redeath and live with him. Uh, and the father kind of becomes this giant asshole who wants Chuck to run away with her, get away from the potential touch situation. And eventually he runs away on his own. The season doesn't really resolve around this plot line. There's a lot more to it, but Kevin, I have to say the, the subplot with Chuck and her, and her father was my least favorite aspect of the series. What say you? Yeah, I would I would probably agree with that. It it just especially because it just didn't get a chance to resolve. Uh, I do think like there's a way to do it where you throw a light, you know, a nice message in there where, you know, sometimes it's better to just leave well enough alone, you know, stay with your memories, careful what you wish for, whatever kind of cliche you want to throw out there. I think there's a way to do it. But I do think to make him just a jerk, uh, although I do agree with him that I do prefer cake to pie. Going back to that conversation. Ooh. Come on. I'm I'm team pie here. Anyways. Yeah, it just and I do agree, too, that like they didn't really they, it like I feel like that thing about her wanting to honor last wishes is a really cool and neat thing. But they do kind of just like get rid of it pretty early on. And maybe part of that is just like, well, we have this 60 second time limit for people to be alive. And I do feel like they played with that time a little fast and loose. And it's like, oh, for this show to move forward with its plot, like Emerson needs to get his information more than she does about their last wish. So we just kind of have to put that to the wayside. Cool idea. But I think their time constraints kind of made them throw that to the wayside. That's just my uh, opinion. Uh, There is actually maybe one other thing I didn't like. Maybe I don't know if I didn't like it as much as the as her dad's thing, but something early in season two I also didn't care for. We'll talk about. Um, yeah, just it, it just kind of does kind of feel like they 
they had her disposition down, but where they wanted her to go as a character at times sort of ebbed and flowed with Chuck. And I don't think it was abysmal, but I do feel like they they just either didn't have the time or they never really quite nailed down uh, how much exactly, like you said, what freedom she was going to get, how much of part of the team she was going to be. I think it would have been better if they were more explicit about like her being able to do these detective things like that gives her the thrill and the rush that she was missing in her in her other life. And maybe that is satisfactory enough for her to to stay put and be with Ned. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I think we're we're very much on the same page about that. and That makes me happy. Um, just in terms of also some other Chuck stuff, uh, she is alive, supposed to be dead. Doesn't think that she can see her aunts, one of whom, again, is her actual mother. Uh, Chuck laces pies for the ants throughout the first season with a homeopathic medicine that is intended to get them out into the world after being shut-ins. And uh, this this leads to uh, Aunt Lily's revealing this information about being uh, Chuck's mom to Olive. Olive carries a lot of emotional baggage on this show, unfortunately. Uh, Chuck also ducks and dodges them multiple times. Um, I love in the first episode when Lily would have seen her if her right eye hadn't been covered and actually did see her momentarily a couple episodes later. But I love that moment where you think Lily's going to see her right away and then yes. doesn't because it's the eye. That's that is really clever storytelling. I really like that a lot. And uh, Vivian and Chuck uh, and Vivian and Chuck also briefly uh, interacted at, at the pie hole as well. And basically the series ends with Chuck deciding that she wants to see her aunts. And uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a very adorable moment and a very emotional one. Yeah. It's an, I mean, man, I would have loved to see how that went, but it's, it's a heck of a way to end the series is for that. And I really like too, that it's been enough time where she's been exposed to the world and they, and they sort of, you know, recognize that as long as she stays kind of in the city and stuff like that, it is almost a little weird. They don't have more close calls with her. But I don't know, like deaths happen every day. Time moves on, things like that. So maybe it's not that crazy, but I do like that it that it's resolved with Ned realizing that, hey, I'm, I'm mostly keeping you a secret for selfish reasons. And I think you should be able to see your aunts like it is almost like if you're going to get this second chance at living and it's going to make everybody in this situation happier and you're pretty sure you can trust your aunts because they want this and their shut-ins, why not? So there's a lot of that to me where, yeah, there, there could be some fun things with some close calls going on in the next season, but to me there's enough where I think about, like, yes, it makes sense for that this would be a safe thing for them to have done. And like I said, it ended the season on a, on a very interesting note. Yeah, I think the ants being shut-ins is really helpful in terms of creating plausible deniability for them not having a lot of run-ins. I think that actually is a good storytelling reason and I, I appreciated it for that reason. But let's talk about Scott McBride as Emerson Cod. He is the Han Solo of the show. And what does that mean? Everything is super colorful, happy, happy, very positive. Uh, Cod brings a little bit of a harder edge. It still works within the show, but like, I think they do a great job because like they have his wardrobe is still very, very colorful, but it still kind of fits in uh, with his motif and with his character like, he has these very soft edges surrounding his ex-wife and daughter. Uh, we also very clearly find out that Khan likes to be controlled by women in certain circumstances, as 
Uh, he dates uh, this woman, Simone Hundine, who goes from a murder suspect in one episode to being a love interest in a future episode. Uh, he is, in some ways, kind of a foil to the Chuck and Ned relationship because he has no time for romantic nonsense, but gives this great speech in the final episode. And I'm really glad that we got this because throughout this entire series, Emerson has just been kind of pissy about them being in a relationship together and the fact that Chuck is even alive. But like, he gives this great speech at the end where he's like, I, I like you are an important part of being positive. Like he sees the worst in society because so many people are dying or dead around him. And this couple is such a huge part of his life. And I loved that speech. It was such a great moment. Kyle McBride is, is such a great performer. Like he kills it in every episode and in a world of darkness for him, Chuck and, T- Chuck and Ned together are a light for him. And again, I really, really appreciated that that's kind of where they ended things uh, with Emerson and being reunited with his daughter. Also a very sweet deal as well. But yeah, Shai McBride is so fucking great in this ep- in this series, as he is in so many other things. And uh, I kind of feel similarly uh, about Shai McBride as I do to Anna Friel. Like, I, and I understand that he's, he, you know, he has done... A lot of shows since then, but it just feels like he should be a bigger deal. He really, for me, is maybe the the MVP of the show. And I think with a lot of these shows like this, you need characters like him for all the other elements of this show, the happiness and stuff to work. You need a character like this to sort of cut through everything else or be the one to kind of make your make your snide remarks or roll your eyes at at certain aspects of what's going on with uh with with Chuck and Ned and certain other things and it's nice that he has his own happiness in his life but also his own darknesses and and I'm glad we get to explore this like it's it really feels like it's a six person ensemble cast with with Ned Chuck uh Emerson the the aunts and and Olive and I feel like we get a lot of depth of all of those characters all of them, I feel like, get a, a really good amount of time where we understand all of them. And that also helps make the show work. And I know we haven't talked too much about it, but I feel like the casting for the flashbacks for the kids' versions of them was dead on in just about every case. And Emerson's, I think, was one of the best. And I and I think that I love that like his relationship with Ned starts for with profit motives and being able to solve cases and makes more money, but turns to a genuine friendship, partnership, more than that to him. And I really, really like that they got one of the characters in one of the episodes to become a love interest of him. And she stuck around in a very organic way. So, man, I can't say enough good things about Emerson Cod and Chai McBride in this show. I could have watched an entire episode of young Emerson and his mom solving cases together. And that, that flashback was so much fun because a lot of the Ned flashbacks have a certain darkness. Like, again, it's still very positive, but still there's like dark elements to it, but just pure pleasure uh, from Emerson and his mom. And you're right. I think they do a great job at the younger casting, but the Emerson casting in particular, they just nailed it. And I think part of it is the wardrobe. Like the wardrobe does a lot of the work for it, but just the little faces that he makes. It's uh, it's really good stuff. I also want to point out. So there is an episode that I really didn't like. Uh, and this is when they were really into the Chuck, Ned, and father storyline. But there was an aspect of that episode that I really liked that I wanted to point out. 
Uh, it is an episode where Emerson and Olive bond together and almost do most they do most of the work without the help of Ned. And it is it is a great subplot. It is a great moment because you don't get those two characters interacting very often. And I also love the idea that Emerson Cod, even without Ned, can still be a good PI. I think that's really important to his character. He is not reliant on Ned. Ned just makes him a better PI. Oh, yeah, that that is definitely important. I love that they give him a hard time sometimes about not being a good PI without him, and then he proves them wrong. I do think that is definitely very important to his character, that he has to show that even before Ned, he could get the job done. Uh, Let's talk about Kristen Kenneth with his olive. Uh, She was a jockey before becoming an employee at the pie hole. That is my favorite backstory of any of them, because just the idea of a female jockey is hilarious to me. Yes, and she is like, that diminutive type that would be perfect for a jockey. Like it reminds me of the jockey elves in the Simpsons. No, we do not. Oh God. What? That episode might be my like Simpsons jumping the shark episode. Well, yeah, it was close to when it wasn't good anymore, but there's still some, no, but that episode specifically, I remember hating it. Listen, sometimes I still say about the horseshoes when he's like, can you give me some dealies? You mean horseshoes? Well, whatever. Just uh, give me some dealies. That, that sometimes gets I, cool. And I say that, but I even sometimes I'm like, we'll give you gold. Like even <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Listen, there's still some there there are still some good jokes now and again, even when the show isn't there. But that was my first thought. It's like, yes, yeah, someone of her stature and smallness would be a great jockey. Uh so yes, uh starting out as an antagonist, we hit on that as well as her getting to sing a number of times, and I think it's it's really great. And you just feel like that this show was very horny to do a musical episode at some point, which has kind of been done to death at this point. And I think if there was ever a show though, to go full on musical, this is definitely one that would have worked. And, you know, like, and I feel like they did sell a soundtrack, but like, I just think about like the, the Buffy once more feeling soundtrack did tons of money. And like iTunes was still a thing like, man, they, they probably with their audience probably could have done, with, with Christian Chenoweth's audience and the small, dedicated audience of this show, they could have done a real, a, a, a small killing on, on iTunes with a, a musical episode turned into a soundtrack. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, so we do see some tension with Olive and Ned. We've discussed that uh, quite a bit. Uh, I think one of the better Ned-Olive episodes is when they actually go to a competition uh, where they make their pies. Uh, I think it's a really good episode for them. It's just very fun. Uh, gets a little fat phobic towards the end. Like it's a it's a really weird thing because basically this person uh, played by Eric Stone Street from Modern Family. That's where people would probably recognize him. Uh, is kind of in charge of this competition, and like the whole reason that they say he's fat, he is fat, is because of the fact that he can't stop eating uh, the chicken that has 500 spices in his. It's basically like the KFC equivalent. And it was just in a, in a show that gets so much right. It just felt so out of place. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. I didn't think of it that way, but I will admit I was blown away. And the, the thing that distracted me the most I was blown away by is we have officially canonically wonderfalls and pushing Daisy in the same universe because the woman from Buff, Muffin Buffalo or Buffalo Muffins, whatever it's called, was both in Wonderfalls and now in the competition in this show. That's pretty crazy. So, yeah, we uh, we do have 
uh, these two shows being in the same universe. And now, now I want to see what else they could explore. Yes. Uh, but I will say earlier in the season, something I didn't like was the whole olive subplot where she goes away for a few episodes. I think it resulted in a great episode when they get her back. I but I was just, I was not into her being a separate thing from the rest of the crew. So my theory, my thinking on that was, was she like doing something like a Broadway thing and she just couldn't be there for a couple of episodes and they just had to separate her and like film all her stuff at one time. Like I was very curious because I agree with you. It just, it felt very awkward just the way that they got her there in the first place. It, uh, it did not work for me totally. But again, I would agree with you. The payoff was tremendous. Yes. And it's, and it is episode three. So they, so they cease it pretty fast. Yes. But it is just like I started this. I'm like, oh, God, I really do not want a whole season of Olive doing her own side thing, especially this particular story. Yes. And uh, Olive eventually, it is revealed, uh, becomes a, the owner of a place that makes mac and cheese. And thus, my favorite character on the show for that reason alone. Well, and I need to say that I, too, would probably choose a former world championship wrestling heavyweight champion over... I uh, make her as well. Uh, so Kevin and I texted back and forth about what other WCW champions we thought should be on. We are not going to discuss the contents because it got very, very dark. But <laughs> all I'm going to say is here's the thing about David Arquette. Like, I think we always think of him as like for wrestling fans, like that's the joke that we always go to. But it is worth mentioning, as always, that number one, not his idea. Number two, don- donated all of his money to Brian Pillman and his family. So I can't, I can't knock him totally. I believe it was Pillman, Owen Hart, and maybe Louis Spicoli. All of their families got a cut of the money he made. Uh, But you know what else? Like we, I mean, he's obviously had some duds in terms of movies and stuff, but David Arquette, not that bad of, of an actor. He's very good in this role in this show. I think he's, I think he's, he is perfectly, uh, he is the perfect temperature for this show because I think he is able to be dark, but he is also able to be very whimsical and emotional. And I think he's really good. I mean, I think if you look at him in the screen movies, I think he's really good in all the screen movies, too. Yeah. So I, I do feel like he's he's unfairly been a punchline always and forever until the end of time. And while I understand it, I don't necessarily think that's fair because a lot of the stuff he does, even if it's bad, he does a good job in those bad things. Absolutely. And if you're going to blame somebody for him being WCW champion, blame Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo. Not him. Not his idea. Not his idea, but I think he did about as good as you could do in terms of giving money to uh, the families and whatnot. So, yeah. But I would agree with you. Definitely a great choice in terms of uh, partnering up. Uh, Let's talk about Lily and Vivian Charles. They don't get a lot of character development. I think Susie Kurtz does a really, really good job as Aunt Lily. She gets some moments to shine. Uh, they have become shut-ins slowly after Chuck's fa- father passes. I love the idea that they were once world-renowned swimmers, but stopped after Lily lost her eye in an accident involving kitty litter. Uh, I think that's pretty amusing to me. <laughs> yeah, that's very funny. Yeah, Swoozy Kurtz, man, she's phenomenal in this show. And I think like it really says it all. When, like, in one of those earlier episodes, she, like, opens up her eye patch and she's been crying and all the water dumps out. And then I think it's either the last episode or the second to last one where it's Chuck's death date and she's trying to be hard and cynical, but she's hiding behind a newspaper and she's crying. 
but it does feel like the balance between the ants is done very well. Uh, I like I like the the different emotional aspects of the two of them, but they both mourn uh, the death of, well, one of their daughters and one of their uh, nieces. Um, and I have to say, we're talking about Barry and Aunt uh, Vivian gets a gentleman caller. And boy, did I get nervous right away. Yes, we have to talk about two of the notable guest stars uh, who we have talked about before on this uh, on this podcast series. Uh, Patrick Fabian is in an episode and he is a, a heavy kind of a murderer in that episode and he's very good. And of course, Stephen Root playing a very similar character in Pushing Daisies as he does in Barry, which canonically I was thinking, is there a way that he is Ron, is, that he is Fuchs in both? And really because he dies, he can't be. But yeah. in my head, in my head, it's still it's still swimming around there, Kevin. Yeah, and I mean, it is, like, basically the same character. It, it blew my mind. And Patrick Fabian, like, I feel like we've seen him in enough stuff now where I feel like Patrick Fabian's always Patrick Fabian in his shows. But you know what? It's great. And that's what makes him great. And I, it, it's almost like, to me, it's like uh, Chris Elliott. Chris Elliott is the same character in everything he does, basically. He's just Chris Elliott, but it's wonderful. I like Chris Elliott. Um but Steve, that I would not say that about Stephen Root. He he is very different in the shows he does. Like I mean, just look at Office Space between Barry and this. But yeah, he really feels like a a, a pre Fuchs analog in this show. And I wonder, I do wonder if there's any part of him that's like nobody watched that show. Let me pull some some of my vibes from this character. Yeah, Stephen Root is almost he's great in almost everything he's in, and. Again, he's been in, like, every movie and TV show. Like, there was literally a night where he was on an episode of Succession and Barry the same night. So that that just shows you how how busy he is and how much he has contributed uh, to, the, to the television landscape in the last 30 years. Is he getting any of that sweet, sweet Star Wars Disney money? I don't think so. I mean, unless he's done a voiceover that I'm missing, I don't think he's getting any of that sweet Disney Star Wars cash. Okay, so he's he's like one step away from where <laughs> Gus Fring is, but he's close. Yeah, I I can't even imagine the the cash the the money that he's gotten for playing off, but that's uh, you, that's another episode. Go ahead. One of the recurring characters, I can't decide how I feel about it. What did you think of uh Oscar, the the character played by Paul Rubens? Unless Paul Rubens is playing Pee Wee Herman, I generally don't like him. That's that's kind of where I fall. I just think. Uh, hello, Mystery Men. I think he's fine in Mystery Men. Like, I think that's perfect because it's a movie and he plays very much kind of a supporting role. But when he's in, like, he's in a bunch of these episodes and I don't know, he just kind of drives me nuts after a while. That's kind of where I land on him. Okay. But what about like not even so much him, but just like the the conceit of that character who has like this super I think the smell and smells something really, off. I think the character is really interesting. I don't know that he's the right person to play it, and I understand because like this a lot again in a lot of ways this is like a Tim Burton like it feels they're very clearly going for a Tim Burton kind of feel, and like even the music very much feels like it's a Danny Elfman ripoff score, which that is not meant to be an insult. Like that's just kind of what it is, and I think it works. And I and I get okay. We're going to bring in Paul Rubens because Tim Burton directed a a Pee Wee Herman movie. So I get it. I just don't know that he was the right casting choice. Is there a 
they have a ton of guest stars. So I'll, I'll start with that and some really great ones. Some really some names. I was going like, to I wanted you to speak on Digby for a while. Like Digby's a notable character. Well, I'll talk about Digby in a second, but I want to ask you: Was there any actor or actress you were surprised to see pop up in this, just because like maybe they don't do a lot of guest roles? I I was definitely. I mean. I don't know why, but it was just surprising to see Patrick Fabian in yet another show. Like, that was the kind of moment when I was like, oh, wow, Patrick Fabian really was on this show. So that that definitely amused me quite a bit. But I can't really think of anyone offhand that that did it. Yeah, I can't really think of anyone. Well, one I do, you? Well, 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 one I, I didn't know was here, but I liked was Gina Torres of obviously Firefly and Serenity fame. I like that she was Emerson's ex. She did a great job in that episode. But the one that I think surprised me the most, just because I don't remember him doing much TV at all, is Orlando Jones. I yeah, was really it's surprised. funny because Orlando Jones was also in American Gods, another Brian Fuller joint. So I think those two clearly have a, a good working relationship with each other. I believe, I feel like Orlando Jones has done something else that Brian Fuller was a part of as well. I cannot think of it offhand, but yeah, Orlando Jones, I think is also somebody else that's super underrated. Doesn't really get the credit he deserves because I think it's one of those things where, okay, Orlando Jones was on bad TV. So I think that might be playing against him, but I think he's very good in certain dramatic roles. Yeah. And I can't remember all, there's a couple different like wonder false cameos in here, but I know the mother in wonder false was one of the women in the covenant there. And so I was like, okay, so he definitely gave some of the people from that show some work here and there, which is nice to see. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very nice to see. Oh, there's the, the maid who gets sent across the border to Montreal, I think. In the one episode of wonder falls, she ends up being the woman who's the murderer. Who's like the make a wish person. I oh, thought wow. that was fun casting too. That is uh that is very fun casting. I will say. Uh, so you want me and, to talk uh, about, you want me to talk about Digby now? Yeah. You got to talk about Digby. I mean, dogs are like, that's your, that's your whole, that's your whole thing. Digby is a very good boy. And it is almost impossible for me to imagine how Ned could have gone all that time without touching Digby, even just accidentally. Like you think about a dog curls up with you while you're sleeping or something like that. And then you wake up and boom, they're dead. Like that to me is, so there is some like, uh, it's a little unrealistic that Digby still alive at this point. That's the other thing I was wondering too. Is like, okay, so if you're real alive, are you alive forever? Or do you, is like, is Digby eventually yes. going to grow old and die? No, I think the whole idea is that if you get touched by Ned, you are a lot, you are, you are technically immortal. I don't think, or I guess you can't not die from natural causes. Like, I think if you get like shot or like stabbed, you could die, but I think you cannot die from natural causes. So either, so either that happens or Ned has to touch you again. I think that, that, that is my understanding of the rules because Digby is alive, even though Ned is like in his twenties and thirties and Digby's still alive and he should be. That would be way past the uh, dog's natural age. Uh, so, yeah. So it is hard for me to buy that Digby would still be alive just from just like living with a dog and like situationalness. But I'm not going to say I was upset that the dog was still alive. If Digby had died, died in the first episode, would you have quit? <laughs> I would have been I wouldn't have quit, but I would have been really mad at you. And I will say that. Digby being there is not only worth it for Digby in and of itself, but to get the pun of Pigby coming in season two. How much did you like that uh, that little uh, play on words? I I loved it. Uh, I I and it was it was a cute pig. So I and I and it made sense to me. Like 
again, in this world of like, you know, oddballness, like it makes sense to me that Olive would own a pet pig for sure. Absolutely. Uh, any other notable guest stars? Uh, I do want to mention the corner uh, played by Cy Richardson. He plays kind of a side role. And I guess if it eventually was going to be realized or discussed that he would have a crush on Emerson. Not sure if that would have gone anywhere. Not sure if that would have really worked. But I think he does a good job of kind of side-eyeing the situation. And I think Cy, I think the corner knows more than he's letting on. That's, that is what my thinking is especially when you get to season two, like he has to know something is going on at this point. Probably. I mean, man, there's so many guests in this show. Uh, lots of really funny people. Oh, I, you know what? I was surprised to see Joel McHale as the, the dog owner. in the Oh episode. yes. Um, probably one of my favorite episodes, which we'll get into in a minute, but really yeah, good. Joel McHale is really good. Then you got like a, a lot of really funny people, but people who are in, you know, shows as guests all the time, like Paul F. Tompkins, David Koechner, I couldn't help but think of like when they had French Stewart and um, uh, Missy Pyle in the same episode. I couldn't think about. I haven't seen it, but there's that. Ugh. It's bad enough they made a third home loan, but a fourth with them two as the robbers. Give me a break. <laughs> um, but they were good in the in the B episode. Uh, Fred Willard, R.I.P. In the in the episode as the magician was pretty fun. How is it that we have talked about Fred Willard twice and he has died in both <laughs> projects? Pretty remarkable. Uh, I feel like uh, like Jama Mays was someone who like she was a guest star like right before she got pretty famous. Rachel Harris, same thing. Uh, Beth Grant was the woman who was in both shows that I was talking about earlier. Uh, Molly Shannon is really good in the episode. I did like that episode when they had the 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 candy shop open up across the store. But I have to say, like pie and candy don't scratch the same itch. Yes, they're both sweets, but I don't see them as competition at all. I like and, that. Uh, how about I, the fact that Mike White is in that episode? Too? Yes, I, I I didn't see him. Okay, he's at the bottom of the list of the guest stars. But yeah, also of course, fantastic. It's amazing what Mike White has become. Uh, and I say it's a good thing. I'm glad for his success. But yeah, it to me the only thing is just like I don't feel like those scratch the same itch at all. I like that it was played that way. But yeah, if if I want to slice a pie, I want to slice a pie. I'm not going to go eat a chocolate bar and feel the same and be like, well, that that curbed my pie craving. No. See, I feel like it should have been a cake shop instead. Agreed. Yes. Or an or ice cream a, shop, even. Or a bakery. Sure. I think that would have worked out better. But I do like I, I, I like the uh, like the old timey candy shop look of the store. So I get that. It, it just uh, I think it pops a little more in that universe, just being able to design something along those lines. But man. So many good. Uh, uh, what's is Carrie Kenny from Reno Nine One One's also in the uh, the magician episode. I will say, I do think the dim sum lose sum is very problematic at some points. Ah, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of yellow face that's going on in that episode. I love the title of the episode. It's great. But, the, the episode titles are great in the show. But I almost put that as one of my favorites, but. Boy, the yellow face um, certainly is problematic. And man, it's 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 again, it just feels so out of place because, again, the show gets so much right. So when they don't get something right, it really stands out. And I think back to, again to the scene with uh, where they kind of make fun of fat people. And yeah, again, the it was just face, a different time. Like it's yeah. not right or wrong. It just it was different. And that stuff people didn't really give a second think to. And you know, to their credit, I don't really feel like anyone put on like an Asian accent or anything like that. And they ha- and they just dressed to go undercover. They didn't really play it for laughs or anything awful. But 
you wouldn't do that today. And it just, it just is what it is. And I feel like even the fat shaming, like that was like the last bastion of things you could make fun of somebody for. And now that's going away. It's just, it's just different. It is what it is. All right, Kevin, let's take turns. Favorite episodes, favorite, more notable episodes. Let's see if we uh, have any in common. What's your first? I I think the Norwegians is one of my favorite episodes where they have this, this, uh, this group of Norwegians who are here to solve. So, so Aunt Vivian once, uh, I almost forgot. I almost said his very name on the show, whatever the, the, her, her boyfriend played by Steven Rocco is missing and Emerson Codd knows what happens to him. And so he can't take her case. Uh, Dwight Dixon, by the way, Dwight, Dwight Dixon. Dixon. So some yes. alliteration. And so since he can't take the case, what he doesn't see coming is that she's going to hire a rival group uh, of these three Norwegian super sleuths to take on the case to find him. And they are very worried that they are going to find him. And Olive feels left out of their group. So she decides to join the Norwegians. But what they don't know till later is she is helping to sabotage the Norwegians case. And that's where I get into earlier talking about how Olive is always on his side. And the one time where it seems like she's been pushed away, you understand, but you're very sad to see her join them. And then you realize, no, she is there to help them out. And that to me is a, is a really great episode. Uh, I like the episode bitches. Like we mentioned the one with all the dogs, not just because of the dogs, but I liked all the four different characters they had there. I like the, the flashbacks we had with Joel McHale. I can't remember now if it was the Norwegians or a later episode in season two, that was my favorite, but I know I texted you. I was like, you know, I feel like this, this show does a really good job of being one long arc and you kind of have your mystery of the week there, but I feel like it was either the Norwegians or maybe even window dressed to kill where you have olives old friends from prison escape. That may have been one of my, one of my favorites. Um, yeah, those are the ones that really jump out to me. It's interesting because I feel like I had bad feelings about season two because of the olive thing at the very beginning. But I do think once that was resolved, I do think I liked season two a bit more than season one but it's almost like if season one if season two is like an a or a plus then season one would be an a or a minus like it's very close and pretty consistent throughout um yeah i think i almost like season one a little bit more but i think it's it's just the same i think i would say a plus a a a minus for season two two of my favorites are from season one one of them is bitches i mean just an incredible title because it works on so many levels and that's the whole point. I mean, the fact that he has the four wives and you can't identify his type because they're all of different nationalities. It's uh, it's a variable cornucopia. It's, it's such a good episode. Joel McHale's death is very clever. I love the way that it's kind of set up and just the payoff throughout is really good. Smell of success. I love that episode just because, um, you do get the introduction of Paul Rubin's character. I think it's, I think it works out much better in this episode. But the idea of the scientist, the way that uh, she dies, uh, causing an explosion from the book, uh, it's just, it's really amusing. And uh, oh, oh, it's magic. I also like as well because again, you have the great Fred Willard playing the great Herman in this. And uh, yeah, I just. I love that episode because you get to introduce magic. And I think this is a world where magic is very important. And yes. 
it's uh it's it's so good so yeah those are those are my three favorites again i you know there's a couple more that i could probably list as well because there are there's some real good ones too but those are the three that i found to be most like the ones that stick with me the most yeah and the magic one is very much like a classic caper too um so that helps too i also do really like the episode with the lighthouse um that was very interesting to me as well but it it did feel like season one to me was more like it was less episode based than season two was which i think is also why it's harder for me to say like oh i like this episode from season one more than this like the two kind of stand out as more individual pieces and one feels like a whole whole which maybe you could make a pie joke there if you wanted to oh you really you you buried me i was literally gonna make sorry sorry oh you're the worst but yeah, uh, but bitches is definitely a standout. And it's one of those as I'm looking through like all the episodes trying to think I'm like, oh, I like this one. I like that one, too. I like that. One. There's what are your least favorite ones? Because I, I don't want to say there's no stinkers, but what is your least favorite episode? I feel like one of my least favorite is and I don't know if it's definitively because, again, even in the episode that I would consider to be my least favorite, uh, I really like the olive and emerson cod stuff but that is the episode where chuck and ned and the father are kind of going back and forth that is an episode that it was it's definitely my least favorite because it just it it felt totally inconsistent with almost every other episode so i don't know i don't remember the name i don't have that one offhand but that is probably my least favorite episode and it's because the chuck and Ned stuff just doesn't work trying to see what that is but i can say the one that I probably dislike the most is Circus Circus, the second episode of season two um, with Rachel Harris. She's fine as her role, but I just I remember like my that's not a circus fan, huh? Not a huge circus fan. And that's also Olive still at the nunnery. And I, my, my attention wavered quite a bit during. That okay, episode. Kevin. So you're telling me you did not like the part when they are bringing out all of the clowns on. Um. <laughs> I see. I really like that episode because of that one moment where they're just bringing clown after clown out of the car, like dead clowns. So I don't know. Maybe I'm easily amused, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good bit, but I don't know. It just wasn't fair enough there. Comfort food is the cook off one, which I also do like. Yeah. Except for the ending. I think it's still 90% of that episode is still really. All right, Kevin, favorite character. I feel like I got to say Emerson. That's the one that comes to my head and I love everybody in this show, but I think he's a standout uh, and it's because of him. I think like if you don't have a character like him, I think a lot of the show doesn't necessarily work because you need that person to play off of for everything else to work. Uh, I, I got to say Emerson Cotton. Okay. Emerson is my favorite. Let's see if we can differentiate second favorite character. I'm not going to say Digby. Cause that I know you really want to. He's like above everybody else, right? Like it's almost like a okay. I'll tell this side story to sort of give you an idea of this. Where I went to my there, there was a a rumor. It's not true that what my school had had like a, a minor reputation of being a party school. I went to for college, and there was a joke or, or there was a rumor that Playboy once upon a time ranked party schools and said like. This university is not on our list because you don't put a professional on the list of amateurs. In my mind, it's like you don't put Digby with everybody else because he's above them for sure. <laughs> Gosh, second favorite. I'm I'm inclined to say Aunt Lily. Interesting. Because, I'm 
Chuck is probably my number two, even though I take some issue with her character, but I and Chuck is probably my number two. And I and you know, like her Olive was kind of what my instinct was saying, but I feel like there's like Emerson and Aunt Lily, I both really like as characters, and there's I mean, I don't want to say they're flawless, but there's more bigger flaws and, and some inconsistencies in the other characters than I have in those two. And I don't know, man. I just am always the person who likes the the bit characters more than the like the the top the the, the top featured people for the most part. Fair enough. All right. Uh, was it canceled too soon? One hundred percent. Fun fact: the last episode of this show in the U.S. aired on June thirteenth, two thousand nine, my twenty first birthday. Uh, That's also pretty this, wild. Yeah. So you spent that night, no doubt, watching the finale without alcohol. No doubt, watching the finale without that, uh, without alcohol. Uh, on a sat. Remember, this is a Saturday when this <laughs> when this is airing, uh, and it is Saturday in the summer. In the summer. Saturday in the summer. It is really sad if you look at like the viewership of the show. It goes like it just tanks hard from the beginning to the end. It's very sad. But yeah, so that's that uh, 100% canceled too soon. Lots of loose ends that I'm interested in seeing what happens. I think there is more of a world to explore. That said, I felt like it just needed one more season. I don't know that it needed to be this big seven, eight, nine season long show. I feel like one more season to tie up stuff and give us this. I feel like that would have been enough. I feel like more than that, you may have been dragging it out too much. What do you think? Perhaps. I I, I feel like this is the kind of show that is repeatable enough to you where you get maybe four or five seasons. I, I am almost a believer that anything longer than 100 episodes really is stretching it too far. But I think this that just the cases alone, I think you could have gotten a lot out of it. And maybe you do some episodes that are much less story-based and are just about the case and you could get some entertainment value out of them. So I agree it was canceled too soon, but I think this is something you could have gotten maybe like 65 to 70 episodes, whereas it sounds like for you, like 50 episodes is your cap. I think it just totally depends on the show. I'm always weary of shows overstaying their welcome. I also yes. think this was in a day and age where shows on TV had to be X amount of episodes that, you know, the 22 to whatever. And I think like another 13 episode season would have been done, you know, would have been well, if it was like three more 10 episode seasons, that might be something, but I don't think if they were going to continue with 22 episode seasons, like it was intended to be in season one, don't think that would have worked out so well. So it's, it's tough to say, but I would say hypothetically in a day and age like now where you could have done a six and eight, a 10 episode season, I think it would have been perfect to stretch it for a little bit more beyond that. For sure. Now, speaking of shows that are coming to an end, we are going to be taking a one month break from our discussion of canceled too soon. As mentioned at the beginning of episode next month, we will be discussing Barry the final season. I now Kevin is not I Kevin you have not watched any of Barry as we are recording this right that is correct I'm going to wait till it's over and then watch it all I am very excited I I am watching I'm watching week to week because I'm hosting so I want to watch every episode twice so that's the main reason that I'm kind of going through it and all I'm going to say is I am very very much looking forward to our conversation there is uh there's going to be a lot to talk about I think this uh, there, there are some funnier elements, I think, in some ways. 
But as you would imagine, it also gets very, very dark. And boy, oh boy, is it going to be a great conversation next month. I'm very much looking forward to it. Not just because, you know, I do think it's nice to get a break from the cancel too soon stuff, but just because like, I've so enjoyed Barry for its three seasons. Uh, we'll maybe we'll decide once we watch the season four, if, it, if this also was ended too soon, not canceled too soon, but just if it ended too early, we'll, we'll, we'll decide for ourselves then, I guess. I feel pretty confident that I know the answer right now. I will not say what it is oh because I want to give people a reason to say next month to, to listen next month to what we have to say. Fair enough. All right, Kevin, any final thoughts, any plugs before we get out of here? No, every, I mean, you, you plugged all my stuff up top, which I'm very appreciative of, I guess just say, uh, follow me on Twitter at K Ford 13 as Jerome very well put it for now. We'll see whatever happens, but you know, anytime I have a review or a podcast or something, it's going to go there. I'm going to pl- I'm going to put the plug up and I don't tweet much beyond that. So I'm not that much of I'm not going to clog up your timeline with much other than that. But that really is the best way. Like if you just want to see when I do something new, just follow me there. I'll post a link. Heard you were thinking about twing- tweeting. You did not hear that because that is not true. Uh, yes, follow me on Twitter at your 1985. Make sure to follow what we are doing here at The Real World. By following at the real world as well. Leave that four or five star review. For Kevin, my name is Jerome. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next month. What is even the point of bringing your love back to life if you can't enjoy her pie?